0: and it what she wants is not particularly um it's you wouldn't want to uh you wouldn't want (laughs) to emulate it i think is the word you wouldn't want
1: to yeah you wouldn't want to broadly advise the goals that she has Greetings everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are thrilled
0: that you are here for an exciting, if bittersweet episode. They are now our fourth time doing this exciting, but bittersweet experience of Ending a Season
1: Yeah, yeah, we're on the last episode of season four, Uh, so we'll be taking a brief hiatus after the end of this season, just to kind of reset the gears and the cogs, but... No worries. We'll be back soon. We're just taking a, a couple weeks off and we'll be back. I believe we've already announced our return date before. It's going to be the start of July, the first week after the 4th of July weekend. That so is we'll be the back.
0: plan, barring a world pandemic that shuts everything... Oh, wait, no. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. No, we're still
1: going to be... <laughs> We've proven that NoScript can endure. We've set it up specifically for such a purpose. At this now point. I will
0: say that NoScript relies heavily on, in all aspects, on the continued existence of the internet. Right. So, <laughs> there are so. potential, potentially worldwide emergencies that would shut down NoScript, but a, a global pandemic is not one of them. Now we know.
1: Yeah. How could just we like, have known? Just knock on wood, (laughs) crossing fingers. Uh, If the internet continues to exist
0: into July, no script (laughs) will be back in the beginning of July. Uh, With season five, it'll be exciting. It'll be new. Some things new. Some things different. Some things very much the same and what you've come to expect. Great conversations about great scripts. That will continue for sure. Again, assuming the continued existence of the internet.
1: And this end of the season is no exception to that. We are we are cranking out one last episode, and it is about one of the theater's greats, uh, a, a new playwright for the plot podcast. We have not done this playwright before. Um, this is the, some would argue, the father of modern drama, Henrik Ibsen.
0: That's right. Ibsen is known for great, great plays. Obviously, A Doll's House is one of them. The Master Builder is another. Neither of those are what we're talking about today. Instead, we're talking about uh, a script that ranks among his most famous ones I think probably Doll's House is the most famous but second I think easily is Hedda Gabler Amazing script, amazing character study, and I think I've told this story before, but uh, just because this script also applies to that. When I was graduating high school and and I was deciding to study drama in college, I asked my high school drama teacher to give me a list of scripts that I needed to read over the summer in preparation for beginning studies in drama, and some of the other scripts we've talked about have been on there, which is where the stories come up before, but Hedda Gabler was also on that list, so... That was the first time I encountered it, and as we were just talking before we started recording, I mean, <laughs> almost an uncountable number of times since then <laughs> have I <Yeah. laughs> come to Hedda Gabler, the script that has lasted for now going on, you know, more than a hundred years.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the stats I read in preparation for this podcast was that Henrik Ibsen is the second most produced playwright, second only to. Shakespeare. So, so, and a huge portion of those productions are the head of Gabler play. Um, over and over it's it's been done and it just keeps being brought back into the cultural vernacular we'll get to that in the context but I'm excited to get to talk about this play
0: before we do that though we do want to ask everybody for one final time this season please head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast that's the URL that's the easiest way to find it if you try to go to patreon and search their search options are not especially stellar but just URL patreon.com slash no script podcast that'll get you there That's where you can become a supporter of the show. There are different tiers. Each tier is a different dollar amount per month. The lowest one is just one dollar a month. That is hugely helpful. There are other tiers as well. For those of you who've been over there who are supporting the show, Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It is your support that is allowing us to get to the end of Season 4 and planning for the start of Season 5. It could not happen without your support. It just really couldn't happen. Because, although we love it, and we do love it... It is not free, and neither of us are rich men. So we need the support (laughs) of patrons to continue to make the script. So those of you who are supporting it, you're our patrons. You're awesome. We've said many of your names on the show before. Those of you who aren't yet, please head over there. Consider becoming a supporter of the show. Again, lowest tier. $1 a month, $12 a year total. That is a huge support to us. So please consider that. We'll see you over there. If you become a patron, you get access to patron-only posts, including an early look at the scripts that are coming up on the show. So hope to see you over there. But for
1: now... Back to the script. Back to the script. I'm gonna kick us off with just a little bit of context. Like I mentioned already, there's just so much that this play has in its long history. I'm just gonna do the helicopter view for y'all. This play was first produced in 1891. Uh, two productions, one in Berlin and one in Copenhagen, um, and then it uh, was produced in the Vaudeville Theater in London in April of 1891 as well. And part of these the success of Ibsen was tied up in the London theater and the critique of Ibsen and the corresponding support of Ibsen by other authors like George Bernard Shaw. So this kind of, this transfer over to London is a familiar theme for Ibsen's plays. Um, The play continues to be produced on and on and to be uh, adapted on and on. We've done a John Osborne play before and Osborne has adapted the play. Um, It's been adapted by Judith Thompson and produced at the Shaw Festival. Um, Recent, I mean, the, the names are just are just very, very long, uh, as in terms of the the uh, female actors who have played Hedda Gabler. It's one of those big, big roles in theater. Um, Ingrid Bergman played her. Kate Blanchett has played her. Um, so, so Jane Fonda, uh, uh, Maggie, Dame Maggie Smith, on and on the list goes. What
0: would you not um, give to see Dame Maggie Smith
1: playing <laughs> yeah. Hedda Gabler? Man. Yes. Holy cow.
0: I'd pay a lot of money for a time machine to see that production.
1: It would have been incredible, yeah. Um, the The play has been produced often, as I've said, 2015, 2017, 2019. I even have one on here that has a, a production in 2020 that has Patrick Stewart in it. Uh, a quick Google search, uh, I can't confirm that to be true anymore, so who knows if that production is still going forward or not. But the play just keeps being produced over and over because it is such a... Uh, such a such a meaningful play with so, such interesting characters.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely a really, really great play. And before we hop into the discussion, let's just give you a quick synopsis overview of what goes on in the play. Before I do that, we do want to take this moment to say, before we get too far into this so that you, you have time to back out if you need to, that Hedda Gabler is a play that deals... Um, bluntly openly and in a very complicated way with suicide uh, some of you remember when we talked about Night Mother several seasons ago. In a similar way to how the question of suicide is approached in Night Mother, it is approached in a similar way in Hedda Gabler. The question of the, the moral justifications, the moral rightness, the predestination of suicide are addressed in the play in a fairly frank way. There are two suicides over the course of the play. And we're good. That's just part of this script and the world that we live in. So if this is not a good episode for you to listen to wherever you're at, if there are young people around you that you need to put in earbuds for, or if you just need to back on out and check out a different script, a different episode, now's a good time to do that. We're not going to be offended. Truly, we will not even know. So please do that. (laughs) If that's what you need to do, uh, please. So, having said that, let's hop into the synopsis of the show. Hedda Gabler is a four-act play. It takes place in Copenhagen, basically. Uh, It is about a young couple, George and Hedda Tessman. Uh, If the name Hedda is confusing that it is not followed by the name Gabler, based on the title of the show, it is because Hedda is newly married. Hedda Gabler is her maiden name. She's now Hedda Tessman. At the start of the play, George and Hedda are returning from a six-month honeymoon trip. I did say that correctly. Not six days or six (laughs) weeks, but a six-month honeymoon journey. And they're returning to their lavish home in the very fancy part of town. And... What occurs is that George is up for a potential professorship at the university. However, his rival, his old enemy, his old sparring buddy, Agert Loveberg, is moved to town to compete with George for the professorship for the professorship. If that sounds really boring to you, you'd be right if that had anything to do with much of the plot of the show. That's really (laughs) just the context amidst what really happens in the show, which is that it's revealed that Hedda and uh, Elliot Loveberg used to be together. It's not especially clear whether they were like lovers in the sexual sense or whether they were just intimate friends or uh, we know that Hedda knows thinks that Elliot wanted them to be more than what they were again it's not totally clear how far that relationship went but they have a history together which included in the past Hedda chasing Elliot out of her home with her father's pistols her father has left her two dueling pistols they become a very important part of the show
1: um, yeah, her father's a, a general in the army, so that's where she's she get gets the pistols.
0: Yes, and they're this fantastic heirloom that is incredibly weighted prop um, that exists through the whole show. So Algyard also has a history of being a an alcoholic, a partier, uh, a guy with a rough history. Who in the intervening years between when George and Hedda last knew him and the present action of the play, he has reformed. He has become a new person. He's sober. He is uh, have been working for as a tutor for Mrs. Alvsted. and she comes to town because Alliert has moved away from their home where he was their tutor to town to try to compete for this professorship. And Mrs. Elfsted is in love with him. Uh, they, they, again, it's not totally clear how far their affair has gone yet, but they're certainly interested in each other in a significant way, if not more than that already. And she's come to town because she's very concerned about him. Not only because he left them and she's going to follow him, leaving her husband, but also because in Copenhagen, in a bigger town, there's a lot more opportunity for him to fall off the wagon. So Mrs. Elvsted, uh, shows up at George and Hedda's home. Now we're getting to the, after all this, we finally arrived at what actually happens in the play. <laughs> Which is that Mrs. Alsted shows up at George and Hedda's home to plead that they sort of treat him kindly, even though they used to be rivals, and um, take him in and tr- try not, not necessarily to live with them, but to shelter him a little bit from the temptations of the town. So they invite uh, Elliot over. Lo and behold, it does appear as if he has been reformed. He's written an incredible book and has an incredible book forthcoming. However, Hedda decides that she's going to mess with the state. Status quo, and she basically goads Elliot into falling off the wagon. Uh, believing, hopefully, that he's going to prove that he can, over, you know, through strength of will, that it's not just avoiding alcohol that's, that he's doing, but he can actually stop being an alcoholic, and he can have a drink and then stop drinking is her hope, or at least what she says is her hope. That does not prove to be the case. Elliot uh, goes on a huge binge, loses the manuscript, eventually shows back up, and Hedda encourages... Through giving him a pistol and through some guarded but not overly subtle language, she encourages Alliot to commit suicide. Alliot leaves the home. He uh, goes out and dies. Uh, we get two stories for how that happens. One of them that is told is sort of an outright suicide. Another is sort of a accidental uh, pistol malfunction. And that causes—and uh, the family friend, Judge Brack, learns of Hedda's involvement with this and basically lords it over Hedda for either just sort of power over her in her life or perhaps something more nefarious in terms of a desired sexual affair with her. And Hedda not being able to stand that and also uh, the massive boredom with her life as it is and all of the things that are Hedda Gabler that we'll talk about. Uh, she decides that she is also going To commit suicide, and that is what happens at the very end of the play. She shoots herself in the head off stage, and the doors are open to reveal her body, and that is the final image of the play. Woo, I feel like I just did a Shakespeare synopsis. Yes. Woo, <laughs> man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> a couple other characters that might pop up in our conversation. There's uh, a set of ants of George Tessman who exist uh, in the town that are kind of his pseudo-parents. We we learned that George's parents were, are not really in the picture for one reason or another. Um, so, uh, particularly Aunt Juliana uh, is the aunt that has lines in the play and pops up often, but also Aunt Re- Rina, or Rihanna, I can't quite remember which one, she's always off offstage, uh, she dies throughout the course of the play, <laughs> um, and then also Berta is the maid, and she uh, comes in and out throughout um, the, the play, mo- mostly introducing folks, but nonetheless has a couple uh, crucial moments of the play as well.
0: So Hedda Gabler is sort of well known for being a character study. Ibsen's body of work represents some incredibly high level character writing to the point that there is a whole body of research on the people that Ibsen sort of used as the word is often bandied about, used as models or bases for the characters that he actually wrote. He's well known for taking real life things that happen around him and adapting them into drama to build this really fully fleshed out, deep world of character. Hedda Gabler being kind of the pinnacle example of that. Who she is, what motivates her, why she does what she does, the choices that she makes, that is really the core of the script. The plot is only plot in as much as Hedda makes of it. It is her choices that drive what happens, and the consequences of those choices, either positive or negative for her, are what occur and, and how those change her, how she wins or loses in achieving some things, are, are part of what goes on. Ibsen is is noted as saying that what I'm quoting him now, what I principally wanted to do was to depict human beings, human emotions and human destinies upon a groundwork of certain of the social conditions and principles of the present. Day, so while Hedda Gabler has a lot to say about society and social conditions, it is principally a study of the person of Hedda Gabler. I think. What do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think. I think notably that quote him saying of the day in the day, it was very rare to have this sort of character study, specifically of a woman. Um, Theater had kind of become a very showy, flashy sort of thing during the time, and and he. Ibsen kind of takes us uh, into a deeper level of drama in theater and writes this female character that is not a... um I'll just say this, not a particularly likable one, not someone who's all about trying to appease the men in the room, um, but rather is acting on her own set of prerogatives, her own set of goals, trying to resolve or uh, fix the boredom of her life that she frequently talks about by kind of pushing at all these relationships, pushing for what she wants in all these relationships.
0: That's right. And it, what she wants is not particularly um it, it's you wouldn't want to uh you wouldn't want to <laughs> emulate it i think is the word you that wouldn't want
1: making... Yeah, you wouldn't want to broadly advise the goals that she has. Right. Um. (laughs) So, not
0: only is she not a particularly likable human being, she's not a particularly upright, upstanding example of human beings either. She says late in the play, the reason why, at least she claims, the reason why she is messing with Elliot's life is just because she wants the feeling of controlling another human being's destiny. That's a very scary statement. I I feel confident, at least at this point in my life, in saying I really do not want to have control of another human being's destiny. (laughs) I'm making life choices right now upon trying not to have control of other human beings' destinies.
1: (laughs) And, and while while it's not maybe advisable to broadly uh, adopt these goals, I think they are nonetheless identifiable goals, and certainly ones uh, with which the audience is asked to sympathize with. I think I think another way to phrase the "I want to have control over someone's life" or to have a say in other people's life is "I want to have someone love me enough that I matter enough to them to uh, to have a say over what they do." And I think in some ways we see her pushing at three different people throughout this play to try to get that from them. And in the pushing, she loses each of those people in a variety of ways. She pushes at, uh, at each of the th- three men who float through the play and even at Mrs. Uh, Elvested as well to try to have some of this reciprocal, not maybe not reciprocal, but to have some care pointed toward her in a way that she can receive. And each time she pushes at them, it goes terribly awry.
0: Now, we know from the description of Mrs. Elvsted, Hedda and Mrs. Elvstead used to be schoolgirls. They had grown up in this town, and so had Mrs. Elvstead. And when they were schoolgirls, we learned that Hedda was a bit of a bully. Mrs. Elvsted says, you know, you used to pull my hair. You threatened to burn my hair off at one point. You would confront me in the hallways, we were not friends, and Hedda, in a manipulative sort of spiel, tries to convince Mrs. that no, you're remembering wrong, we really were friends, but I think that we are, the audience, I think, is left to believe Mrs. Elsted's account that Hedda was a bully as a schoolchild, and that is an interesting insight into who she has become as an adult.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, the, the, our introduction to her as a character at the top of the play, um, aunt Juliana is over. She's talking to George, um, kind of recounting things. She's set down her hat and, uh, Hedda comes in. Uh, she kind of greets her in, in some, in a polite way. And then just like, criticizes the hat in a very upper-class way, knowing full well that it's the aunt's hat. Um, yeah, so this <laughs> happens
0: in two moments. One right after another, we learn different things. Well, three, if you include the moment where uh, the aunt sets the hat down, and she says, I got this fancy new hat, and actually George sets it aside for her. So the audience, at that moment, knows that the hat is the aunt's, and it's fancy and new and really important to her. She actually bought it to show off to Hedda. So that's the setup. Then Hedda enters the same scene later on in the scene and she says, we're going to have to fire the maid. She's leaving her old hats strewn about. Ouch, okay? Dramatic irony that audience knows something Hedda ostensibly does not. That this hat is new, it's really important to the aunt, it's not the servants. Everybody gets upset, Hedda makes apologies. She references it a couple of times later on that, oh, is is the aunt still mad about the hat? But then, in the third part of this three-part story, she's talking to Judge Brack. And she reveals that she actually knew the whole time that the hat was the aunt's. And that she just said it. Why to be mean? Just to be yeah because, <laughs> I, <laughs> just, because. just because that's, that's the answer right? <laughs> just because because it was something to do. It, it was something that would stir up the feathers in the room, and 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 she she is bored. I mean that's the claim she makes, scene to scene, act to act, consistently through the play. I'm bored. I've just been on a Mm -hmm. six-month honeymoon trip that was supposed to be all about me, but in truth, my uh, scholar of a husband did nothing but research the whole time. We didn't have any visitors. His research is not even interesting research. It's like 14th century textile mills. (laughs) And so she says, I'm bored. We moved back to a house that uh, is in a part of town that we can't really afford. So we're going to have the fancy house, but not any of the fancy stuff so that we can actually entertain fancy guests. Uh, George is not really interested in pursuing the socialite political power part of the town. He really just wants to be a professor and research 14th century textiles.
1: I, I think it's important at this stage to kind of help us vernacularize this because this is a based in a in a class system in the 1800s, <laughs> so it's a very bourgeois, very middle high to upper middle class story um, about uh, these things that make her life and the life of, uh, of the folks around her fairly boring, and we're we're saying that like it's a just a I mean it's. It could be termed as kind of a light thing to live a boring life. Um, However, I think... It it (laughs) is,
0: okay? I mean,
1: you said earlier that
0: the audience is asked to sympathize with Hedda, and I think I take a very different perspective on it. I don't have any sympathy for her, and I don't even think Ibsen asks me to have sympathy for her. I mean, she lives a very privileged life, a life which has certain challenges. One of them being that she's a woman in this society has no power, no decision making power of her own. She only marries George because she felt like she was getting old and going to be past marrying age at some point and thus not have any means of providing for herself. So, I mean, not to say that there aren't challenges in Hedda's life, but part of the framework of the play is that she also lives this plush existence where almost every other character in the play is doing everything they can To please her, (laughs) you're
1: not wrong. Um. (laughs) I know I'm not wrong. I do wonder if the 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 term boredom though is is could could be swapped out for unfulfilled. A life unfulfilled. It's clear from her interactions with these three guys throughout the play that she is a very driven person. It's almost as if she, we see three different facets of her in these three different relationships. She's a very driven person, she so she tries to act towards George in a way that gets him to be a driven person. (laughs) Some of the reason why she ends up burning uh, the the manuscript is to try to get it out of the way for George so that he can become the professor. This rivalry between uh, Ehlert What's his last name again? Loveberg. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Aert Loveberg and George is building, and it's becoming. They're wondering whether or not uh, Loveberg is going to take over the professorship. Professorship that George wants. So part of her motivation—that's
0: she claims that that was part of her motivation. Uh, I don't think we're under any obligation to believe that claim. (laughs) While she's burning it, she's chanting to herself, "Mrs. Elvsted, I'm burning your (laughs) child." (laughs) Because Elliot okay. and Mrs. Lovestead okay. have referred to the manuscript that they basically wrote together, it's revealed in the play as their <laughs> collective child. And while Hedda is burning it alone on stage, she's chanting, "I'm killing your child, Mrs. Elvstead. So, you know, the fact that later on she claims it was to help out George <laughs> may not
1: be that doesn't fully hold truthful. a lot of
0: water with me. <laughs>
1: But also, she asks in other scenes about trying to get George into politics, so it's clear that she's trying to push George into what she can't actually do in society, and to be a person of influence, and thus have some influence herself. Um, You see it in her relationship with Loveborg as well, uh, how she uh, wants to live this kind of like, uh, um, I'm blanking on the word, a very uh, love E life or a ide- romantic. There we go. Uh, romantic in the philosophical sense life that Loveberg tends to live. And so she pushes him back to drinking, back to the uh, what makes him into this kind of gregarious uh, Dionysian like being. She pushes him back towards that.
0: Yeah. Well, and it, it's it's in a conversation with elliot that she reveals what might be one of her more truthful, vulnerable statements in the play. They're talking about how when they had this uh, relationship, whatever whatever that relationship was, much before she knew George, when that was happening before, Elliot was revealing to her things that he'd never revealed to anybody else about his drinking, about his uh, carousing, about, as you say, his Dionysian wildness that he had been living. And Hedda was asking, was, was probing questions about this part of his life. Now, again, this, this 19th century class system that they were involved in, this would have been really inappropriate for a woman to be asking about drinking and prostitutes and parties and all this stuff, but she was, and she was very interested. She wanted every detail she could get from him. And now, in the present moment of the play, he's asking her, "Well, w- were you at? W- why did you want to know all that? I never had told anybody, and I, it was a little weird that a young woman like yourself would want to know that. Was it because you wanted to reform me to make me pure by virtue of confession? Like, what? What were you trying to get out of that?" And the the, The thing that Hedda, I think, is perhaps truly vulnerably revealing there, she says it was because a girl like me could never live that life. I don't have access to do any of that, so all I had was the chance to ask you about it, to sort of live vicariously through you recounting the wild, extraordinary, uh, you know, morally questionable life that you were living. That's not something I could have ever done. So she is a woman stuck in the rigid confines of the the role that society has asked her to play, and she finds ways to stretch those confines. Now, it is Judge Brack that accuses her ultimately of being— or no, it was Elliot, actually, that, re- that accuses her ultimately of being a coward, of not willing, not being willing to actually break those confines in any substantial way, but just to sort of talk a big game. He, It's also him that makes that accusation, uh, while he's also the person in the scene when she reveals that vulnerability.
1: Right, right. I think you're right on with that. This, this kind of le- the 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 world in which she lives does not allow her to live in a way in which she wants to live, and thus she. Explores the world that she wants to live through other people's experiences.
0: Or, or perhaps it, it, it doesn't. I'm not sure if Hedda even knows what life she wants to live. It's perhaps more that she doesn't even have the choice about what kind of life she's going to give. I'm I'm not sure that she has like in her mind's eye like, if I could do whatever I want, this is what I would do. But I do know that she knows that she can't do whatever she wants. And so she doesn't even have the ability to form what that life might. Might be.
1: So then, what are the ways in which she she pushes in this play, or tries to form that world? Uh, e- I mean, even if it is just to relieve boredom, she does regularly push on the world around her.
0: So some of it comes out in casual cruelty, right? I mean, when she's unfulfilled and depressed, and 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 in a you know in this place that she's in, this headspace that she's in, some of that. Anger, resentment, bitterness comes out in casual cruelty towards others. We've already talked about that one of those first moments where you learn who Hedda really is. She makes the comment about the aunt's hat, pretends to be all sorry that she didn't know, and we learn later that she knew all along and just said it, you know, we just determined just because. So that's one example. It comes out in casual cruelty towards others or seemingly casual cruelty towards others.
1: And then other times it's like a chess player's master manipulation cruelty towards others. Um, I think of the, uh, (laughs) the, the way that she pretty systematically gets, uh, Mrs. Elvistead and Elliot Loveberg into this conflict. Um, she accepts, uh, Mrs. Elvistead back into her life, accepts her, gets her to accept her as a confidant rather forcefully a couple scenes, like sometimes physically forcing her to sit down and, and drink tea with her. Um, and then reveals certain natures of the secret that she was telling her about Elliot to Elliot in the room with Mrs. Elvestead. So she kind of like lights this fire underneath them after having slowly built the fire itself over the course of the day.
0: Yeah, so there's all these schemes that she has working. That's one way that this unfulfilledness manifests itself. And then there's also... This fact that she wants to live in luxury. I think Hedda has basically taken the position that if I'm not going to be allowed to be anything but a spoiled, pampered housewife my whole life, if that's the only role that society is going to allow me to take, then I'm going to do it. Gosh darn it. And so she is a spoiled, pampered housewife. She asks for and gets, by virtue of the devotion of the people around her, the things that she wants. She's upset when she's not going to be able to have the coachman and the horse that she really wanted to take her around. She's hoping to get a new piano that actually matches the room. And when Mrs. Elvstead is talking about her own unfulfilled marriage... um, that it comes up that Mrs. Elfsted is not really getting monetarily spoiled or anything like that. And Hedda says that, you know that's your mistake. That was your mistake. If you're going to be in an unfulfilled marriage, you might as well be comfortable and, and live in luxury. And Mrs. Elfsted has not done that while Hedda has.
1: Mhm. It's interesting then to to see that that uh that core thing, the reason that she has decided to be with George, to have this kind of provision to live in luxury. It's interesting to note what happens when that when it turns out that that's not going to happen for them or that that is in danger. When uh Judge Brack brings news that it's possible that there could be an interviewing process at the university rather than it being a sure thing that George is going to get this professorship and and then other other wheels begin to turn a little bit, especially when it's discovered that it's likely Elliot. Uh, his new work and his uh, assumed next work that are putting him in the running for the professorship and in uh, a conflict with with George.
0: Right. Hedda's reaction to that is a major revelation of character because it proves that all of this stuff that the people around her think are you know central to who she is. This living in luxury, getting every little thing I want. Everybody thinks, oh, that's so important to Hedda. Got to take good care. We're gonna we're gonna give everything we've got to making sure Hedda can live exactly like she wants to. Everybody thinks this is so important to her, but you're exactly right. When it's put in jeopardy, her reaction is not to run screaming and panicking around and not even really to try to solve the problem. Her reaction is, it'll be interesting to see how this competition turns out. Her reaction is interest and intrigue. And to me, that proves that ultimately the luxurious part of who Hedda Gabler is is just another way to fill the boredom. It's not anything specifically important to her in any crucial central way. It's just an avenue to fill the boredom. So when another avenue presents itself, the fact that her husband is going to have to compete with her former lover, potentially, uh, that's interesting and intriguing. So that fills the hole for now.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. And then she just continues to lean into that that conflict and kind of stir that pot more and more. I think you're right in kind of doubting some of her altruistic uh more altruistic explanations of why she's doing the things to Elliot that she is. Um, However, the end result is pretty uh, beneficial for her family unit. (laughs) I mean, she pretty, pretty regularly from the middle of the play on destroys Elliot's um, reformed reputation um, through, through kind of consistent small acts and then pushes him completely to kind of a brink by suggesting that he use her pistol to kill himself. But at, at towards the end there,
0: Yeah, there's really two moments where Hedda inserts herself into Elliot's life to try to determine the course that it's going to take, at least within the action of the play. The first of them is the moment where she encourages basically... Uh, you know, she basically, in modern day vernacular, she sort of makes the chicken sound at him when he says he's not going to have a drink. And this is not what she actually does, but yeah. she basically just goes, cluck, 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 work, 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 work. <laughs> what are you, chicken? Take a drink. <laughs> right. <laughs> and she's got a couple other tactics, but that's really the core of it is, oh, you must be a coward. Now, Elliot initially holds up to that. Until she says, oh, Mrs. Elvsted, see, you didn't have anything to worry about. Why were you so worried? He is committed. He is sober. And it's the revelation that Mrs. Elsted did not have faith in Elliot all along that causes Elliot to fall off the wagon. Now, that is, that's a step of deviousness beyond just, hey, you're a chicken, take a drink. Then she pulls Mrs. Elvsted into this. And lets loose a secret that they've held between her, stabs Mrs. Elsted in the back, betraying both Mrs. Elstead and Elliot in that moment, yeah. causing him to fall <laughs> off the wagon. That's the first mm-hmm. of the two. The second two, of course, is giving Elliot the pistol to kill himself.
1: Right, right. Which is at the end of just uh, all the dominoes falling as a result of that first moment where she uh, kind of manipulated Elliot into it. He's since gone to a party with the guys. Something else that she has kind of been kind of pushing him toward all night is to go to this party. And, um, and, and he, he goes just completely off the deep end. He winds up at the, uh, the house of ill repute in town. Um, he, he uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, lots of, lots of, uh, yeah, lots of extra things happen as a result of it. He loses his manuscript, which is uh, something we've drawn some attention to already in his drunkenness. As he's walking along the road, he drops his manuscript out of his coat pocket. And uh, that manuscript is picked up by George, who has miraculously fallen behind the group um, <laughs> and in such a way that he can find the script and he brings it to the house. So Hedda has his manuscript, this new book that he's written about the future. And, uh, and notably, and, uh, he
0: and Mrs. Elfsted have written together.
1: hmm Yeah, yeah. So so it's interesting that it's in the room. There's, there's, a, there's an interesting choice that we as the audience know Hedda can make said, or I'm sorry, uh, Iliart comes over. He's in the study with her. We know that two things are in the study drawer. Uh, we know that the set of pistols are in the study drawer, and we know that she has locked his manuscript in the study drawer. So there's this interesting moment where you know that she has to make a choice. Does she give him, uh, when she's going to the drawer, we, we maybe hope that she's going to give him back the manuscript, that she's going to turn around and, and kind of do a, a noble thing, if not the noble thing. Um, however, she goes to the drawer, she unlocks it, and instead of handing him the manuscript, she hands him a pistol and suggests to him that he just kind of end this sorry story that he's living.
0: This is just an example of Ibsen's genius writing, right? Is that he invests Hedda with the exact power that she wanted. She ha- you're exactly right. She goes to the desk and she has the choice. At the desk are the pistols and the manuscript. Eliot's salvation and his destruction. And Ibsen has built the situation so that it all falls to Hedda. What is she going to do? I mean, that is just such crystallizing, clear, beautiful writing that boils everything down to this moment for Hedda. She has in her hands, or within her reach, Elliot's salvation and his destruction. What's she going to do? I mean, that's that's such powerful drama. That is the core of drama, right? Watching characters make choices that are going to change the world around them, that is going to change them, the people around them. It's going to have ripple effects and consequences. What choices are they going to Make and Ibsen has written just a series of choices that come down to that exact one in such sharp clarity.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. I think, in some ways, I, I read a little bit in preparation for this that some of this play and some of Ibsen's later work in general was kind of playing around the theme of Greek tragedy and the rewriting of the Greek tragedy. If there's a moment of climax in the play, it's kind of that moment. Where she makes that choice, and then we see the kind of effects that that happen as a result of it, and all the pieces fall uh, ultimately to her her demise. We see each of her kind of machinations end up pretty pretty badly for her. Uh, Elliot's gone. He's either shot himself or the pistol. The pistol has shot him, one way or another. However, you <laughs> decide to interpret what happens to him, there's some uh, ambiguity around that. Uh, George is working on Elliot's manuscript based on the notes that Missus Elvsted had with Missus Elvsted. So they have this kind of uh, connection of creativity around this project with with her. Um, she has lost her. Po- Hedda has lost her position of power and a- a- autonomy from. Uh, Judge Brack, that she is uh, in previous scenes said that she is basically needs. She 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 does not want to be um, beholden to Judge Brack or really anyone at all. Um, but Brack has found out that she has given away the pistol to Elliot, so he has that power over her in that scene.
0: Right, and there, Brack and Hedda also have some sort of romantic or pseudo romantic history before Hedda was married to George. And initially it seemed Brack comes over and he's in this sort of, you know, awesome Ibsen subtextual language. On the one hand, Brack seems to be asking just that he be allowed to be an intimate family friend. Uh, whereas the subtext seems to be he he asking Hedda if they can be sort of an affair. He can be an interest for her because her husband's so dull, and he could be around to just sort of spice things up a little bit, uh, probably in a a sexual affair of some sort, an ongoing one. That's early in the play, and Hedda seems interested in that um, when it's her choice. Later in the play, as you just mentioned, the judge gains the power over her to now Uh, you know, bend her to his will. I'm going to get what I want no matter what you want out of the situation. And Ibsen creates the circumstances where George is going to be working on this manuscript now every evening. And again, in that dramatic irony, the audience knows what's just happened between the judge and Hedda. He's claimed his power over her. George does not. And George basically says, hey, well, I'm gone every evening. Judge Brack, do you want to keep Hedda company?
1: <laughs> yeah. And so
0: he's going to be over all the time with this power to demand what he wants. Not trying to seduce her and win her as he was earlier in the play, but to demand and to take.
1: And in the midst of this is another choice to return to the desk again. And now we know there's only one thing in the desk left. <laughs> we know that there's the other pistol Left in the desk.
0: Right. So George and Mrs. Elvsted are moving into the living room basically to start work on the manuscript. At the desk is the box, which is supposed to contain two pistols, but instead only contains one. So Hedda goes to the desk and takes that pistol into the back room to hide it.
1: Yeah. And 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 so kind of in the middle of all this this uh Loss of each of those things, loss of each of those places where she had power, loss of, uh, event- or and kind of seeing the, the, uh, corruption of some of her goals that she was shooting for and bringing about a lack of intimacy with all of those, especially, th- there's a bit of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna distract myself just a little bit here with this comment because I think it applies, there's a bit about names in this play, um, people who call Hedda Hedda, and only one person calls her Hedda Gobbler, um, and and how she never she never calls George George until the end of the play. It's always Mr Tessman. Um towards the end of the play, she finally calls him George a couple times. It's after the the manuscript has been burned. Um, She's kind of told him, at least, that she did the sacrifice for him. He's very grateful for that.
0: Yeah, so Um, using
1: the name George there is a tactic
0: to try to show her deepening affection for him, to give him uh, some sort of symbol that really I did do this all for you and to prove, and it's because I'm so in love with you and because I'm so in love with you, I'm gonna call you by your first name which again is it's one of those uh, different time things where that that calling somebody by their first name is a big step in your relationship. Nowadays, that's just what we do. But then that that's a big step in a relationship. And George is always asking her to call his aunts by their first names, and she's refusing to.
1: And then in the face of that, George turns to this project uh turns towards this book of Elliot's that he's working on with Mrs. Elviset and basically says oh you you go hang out with the judge while i'm doing this at my aunt's house <laughs> so she's she's lost her position in all of these relationships and and this is where the the kind of
0: that's where the Greek tragedy comes in, right? That's yeah, where yeah, all yeah. this started. I mean, picture this and tell me if you don't think I'm talking about a Greek tragedy. The end of the play is that the central figure, their choices have resulted in such disastrous consequences that only disaster can remain. So they go off stage, and off stage, some terrible violence is done. They die, or in a different Greek tragedy, they rip their eyes out. In this case, she kills herself off stage. And then, in the final moments of the play, the body is revealed to the audience, the body, not the act of violence, but the result is revealed to the audience. and the tragic end of i mean that that ending the ending of Hedda Gabbler is the ending of a Greek tragedy
1: absolutely almost yeah. I
0: mean in form as well as plot as well as structure
1: yep the only the only uh little piece of it that I think. I think shows its its modernity, and uh, I would I would kind of quibble with a little bit is the the world is not necessarily better off because she's gone. Um, in Greek tragedy, that's an important last step: is the the city of Thebes um, can it is now not cursed by the gods because Oedipus has been cast out and did this horrible thing to himself. I think He's gone, I'll push back, back on it. you there.
0: Uh, whose life is not better off without Hedda Gabler in it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, Ibsen <laughs> makes a makes a very clear through Hedda that the continuing destiny of what's going to happen after head is gone is that George and Mrs. Elvsted are going to get together. Mrs. Elvsted doesn't have any prospects. She wants to leave her husband, but now that Elliot's dead, she doesn't have anything to do anywhere to go, anybody to live with and provide for her at all. So what are her options if not to stay with George? Well, it'd be to go back to her husband or to try to make her way in that time period as a, a single divorced woman. That'd be a problem. Um, um, so, and Mrs. Elvsted's Mrs. life is better. She's going to be able to stay and work with George, and Hedda believes ultimately be in a relationship with George. George's life is better. He's going to have a be, have a partner in his life who is actually interested in his work, who is not just annoyed and bored by the scholarly nature, but wants to work with him. Maybe the judge's life is not better. I guess. <laughs> I mean, Hedda. I'm, look, Hedda's made a mess of the people's lives around her. And the play is not, in the way that a Greek tragedy is a judgment on the protagonist, the, Hedda Gabler is not, I don't think, a judgment on Hedda. It's a portraiture. And much literature has been written about, is Ips- what is Ibsen trying to say about Hedda? And there's so many different opinions, but a, a, a substantial bulk of the scholarship also says he's not really trying to say anything about Hedda. He just created a fascinating, interesting, sometimes devilish, sometimes sympathetic and understandable character that you watch what happens to her. It's a study in who this kind of a person is. Now, the people around her, in some ways, are going to be able to thrive with her absence. That's one of the hard parts of the play. We gave the content warning about the sort of Open, frank conversations about the pluses and con- you know, the, the not pluses and cons, those that's not the right things you say together, but you know what I mean of suicide. And this is where that conversation gets kind of uncomfortable.
1: And I think that's I think just to return again I, I like everything you say I think I think structurally uh, uh, yes we're kind of set up in that similar uh, s- structure from tragedy I think however the sacrifice does not uh, equate the reward in this scenario and it's and it's partially because the gods aren't involved the gods have not cursed. Had uh, a gobbler, and we're not—we're not, we're not uh, judging her life based on a set of God's morals around. Now, um, notably, un- un- Hedda
0: Gabler does <laughs> claim to be cursed in the play.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> but I think ultimately, though, I think there's a lot of other things that are called into question as a result of her sacrifice at the end of the play. I'm not fully convinced that George is going to go ahead and write the book now. Um, he seems, in the one line that we get from him, he's—he's—he's. He's, he's, side-sideswipe by this completely. And we know throughout the play that he is devoted to Hedda, um... just kind of like a doting puppy to that degree. He's willing to go completely into debt to try to serve uh, her her wants for the world. So I don't know that his life is necessarily better than than that. And and I don't think that's really the purview of the play either, which is kind of its modernity. Again, we're not hanging out in the house after the funeral to see what the world is like afterwards, as we would in a Greek tragedy where we say goodbye to the hero and then we have a nice chorus piece about how Thebes is great now. Um, this play, I, I think the sacrifice and the... the um, the death of Hedda by the end is 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 maybe just more uh, the sad side of tragic. The 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 empathy for the character that we have is partially generated by that act. Um, I I don't know that the, I, the the the.
0: You can't see this audience, but I've been nodding along to Jackson this whole time. So I don't want you to think <laughs> I'm sitting here waiting to make my counter argument. Boiling, <laughs> I I agree with everything Jackson says. I've been nodding along, and to be clear. I don't necessarily think—I think I agree with you. I don't necessarily know that George and Mrs. Elfsted's lives are going to be better. I was taking Hedda's point of view. This is right, what right. Hedda believes or claims to believe because I think the other thing, crucial thing that is differentiating from a tragic and a Greek tragic end to this play, is that Hedda's choice to kill herself at the end of the play is not a choice based on her trying to restore justice. I think that's what you're, you know, you're setting the gods aside. The characters at the end of Greek tragedies see what happens to them as just retribution, right? Uh, Oedipus claws his own eyes out. Creon is forced to carry his son's body and understands that what he did caused this. There, I don't think Hedda's choice to kill herself is a choice to try to restore justice and balance to the world. It, so in that way, perhaps that gets at some of it too.
1: Yeah, it, I agree. I think it's more of a choice towards one of the last things she feels she has power over. Um, and again, it's located around a gun. Again, it's located around her m- moving out of her set of goals. Um, again, we're in the complicated realm of, 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 of trying to talk our way towards uh, of justifying her choice. But the choice at the end is to remove herself from places that have power over her into a place that she has power over herself. Right,
0: and justifying it dramatically, right? This is what, in, in a structure, in a literary sense, this is the direction of the character. She is not going to forego that last bit of power that she has, is not willing to give that to another man. And in the dramatic literary sense, that might be an appropriate direction for that story to go. There's this, of course, morally aghast, moral question of suicide, but that is not the question that Ibsen's posing. That's not the world that we live in to make a uh, in this play to make some sort of judgment on the action of Hedda Gabler.
1: Yeah, if if you if you come to this play looking for some sort of uh, uh, worldview uh, view on whether or not she should do this at the end. That's not the purview of the play. It's not what it's setting out to do. It's setting out to explore the character of this person and their relationship with the people around them.
0: And their relationship to the, cho- you know, the, the choices that a character like this will make and what the consequences of those choices might be. That's what we're here to witness. What Hedda Gabler's, like, goal is in a dramatic acting sense, I, th- I think it's vague. I think it's hard to establish and make clear what direction she's trying to go in. Um, and that's, that's probably, you know, whoever plays Hedda in the next production is going to have to figure that out for themselves. And that's fine, because I'm interested in watching what happens.
1: Well, that's the excitement of the character. That's why it keeps coming up over and over, is it is vague, but it's also rich, it's a deep well of options <laughs> that you can decide because uh, uh, what something that is often said is don't play a character who's bored. That's boring. Play a character who is focusing on trying to fix the fact that they are bored. And I think how she fixes, uh, how how Hedda Gobbler fixes that boredom around her is is a a field deep with possibilities. And and this play just provides all sorts of ways for an actor to work into that subtext and, and try to fix that boredom for her
0: another thing that Ibsen does so well of course is build in these incredible memorable images and moments that will stick with people maybe as a way to end Jackson let's trade some of those back and forth I mean who who has seen or read a Gabbler* will ever forget the image that starts act 2 she ends act 1 by talking about her how she's going to go play with her pistols basically and in the beginning of act 2 she's polishing and preparing the pistols and she's Sees Judge Brack coming on from off stage, and she fires in the air just above his head.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah. what a moment! Yeah, the, the 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 scene. I believe it's at the end of Act Three. Um, she is uh, burning the manuscript a couple pages at a time. And uh, you, I mean each each production decides how best to to do that. Um, one, one production I saw had the grate in the middle of the floor and she places the entire manuscript on the fire, watching it burn in front of her. as she says the lines that Jacob mentioned earlier that she's she's burning the, 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 the child of <laughs> Elvsted and Elliot.
0: That's a tough moment for,
1: for that, a, a moment. character. It's, it's, a a man, it's a manuscript. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's not it's a real a crea- child, everybody. It's a creative child. We haven't child. made that clear.
0: A creative <laughs> child, yeah. Uh, I love the moment at the beginning of the play where it's just George and his aunt, and she keeps trying in this very layered, uh, very... Uh, kind of roundabout language to ask if head is pregnant yet. And George is just like it's flying over his head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's like, "So, after that 6 months of your honeymoon trip, are you are you expecting anything?" Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Auntie, I am expecting what a professorship. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then just like the the super foreshadowing around probably the two most weighted props in the play, both the we've already said it a little bit, but both the guns and the manuscript going into a desk drawer, her locking the drawer and then placing the key on the study desk. So we know that there's like a gate when we interact with either of these objects, objects next, there will be a warning for us to start getting excited for what's going to happen. And then the eventual reveal that she gives him the pistol, I think is just, just a, such a poignant weighted moment.
0: Yeah. And that language that Ibsen uses throughout of vine leaves in his hair to sort of illustrate the, the romantic Dionysian grandeur of the life that Eliot lives. Lots of people have wondered what exactly Ibsen meant by that. He actually uses the phrases in a couple other plays, and some people say that there's all of this implication in the lines. Some people say it's just, just a reference to that Bachian revelry, that it's not all that complicated. Whatever you think about it, it is, that language is through the play. I mean, vine leaves in his hair is as much from this play. That phrase. That that we use now
1: is as much from this play as anywhere. I think that's about as much time as we have for this play, but it is time to extend this same question to you. What sort of images stick out to you having uh, read, listened to, watched uh, Henrik Ibsen's Hedda Gobbler if there's anything that's standing out to you or just you want to have a conversation about this fairly well-known play you can find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter with the username at NoScript Podcast we also have the Gmail NoScript Podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites we'd love to keep getting to have conversations about this play or any of the plays from this season 4 of no Script Podcast right. this I mean now it's over you know we're in the
0: last few minutes we've just got the it things is. that we say every episode so this is the end of season <laughs> for. It is uh, is sad. It is exciting at the same time. We are... We're ready for season five and the next set of scripts that are going to provoke such interesting, great discussions that we get to have and hopefully that are interesting and great for you to listen to as well. If you'd like to recommend the podcast to anybody, we've got four seasons now of backlogs that you can listen to (laughs) in the break, so recommend it even through the break. Um, They can access us on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or where we're hosted on Podbean. If you're connected with us on Facebook, we do post a link to the new episode every Monday there, so that's a great place to find us. There won't be any links to new episodes for the next couple of weeks, but again, all those places have our entire back catalog of really, really good scripts. I'm guessing that across four seasons, there's a script that somebody that you know has read. And right. if whether that's something as common as like Fiddler on the Roof, something as new and uh, pervasive as next to normal, I don't know. There's probably a script that somebody you know has read or seen in our backlog. So go have them check out that episode. They can find it. I'll say it again. Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean. Hopefully you'll do that for us. That's a great way to help us out. And now it's time for a break.
1: Yes, it is. So until next season, when we'll be talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No
0: Script for season four. We'll see you in season five.
1: See ya.